to the book of Revelation. If you're visiting, we have been on the uh, scenic route journey through the book of Revelation. And as you're turning there, Lord, would you give us insight into your word today uh, that you would speak to us individually like you promised that you would. that your spirit is alive all around us, inside of us, and you said you would write your will on our hearts and on our minds, and we just ask for that uh, today as we encounter you here in this. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Revelation uh, is not a hard book to understand. If you, if you want to go back and debrief uh, some of that. We've got the podcast up. You don't have to send your love gift to our ministry. Call any 800 number. You can just go on conduitchurch.com and it's already there for you. But at the risk of not going back and uh, reviewing that, we do want to review at least what these letters to these seven churches are about. These are epistles. If, you, if I were to ask you about the epistles in the Bible, you would say, oh yeah, Paul wrote them. But Jesus wrote these. There are seven epistles, seven letters to seven churches that he wrote that are valuable to us. And we know they're valuable to us because at the last of this letter here in verse 13 of chapter 3, he says, he who has an ear, if you have an ear today, that uniquely qualifies you, what the Spirit says to the churches. So it is applicable. It means something to you and to me personally as well as to churches globally that Jesus wrote these letters, and yes, it meant something to them. And there was an actual church that got this actual letter from the actual mailman, but they mean something to us as well. And if you remember, every one of these letters are so un just sophisticated and complex that the letter of the, the name of the city itself would actually mean something to what Jesus was saying to these seven churches. And in this case, it's Philadelphia, home of Rocky. Adrian! You know, I'm not going to charge you any extra for that. You're welcome. The city of brotherly love. That's not just something we say. It actually is true because the word is phileo, which is the word, the Greek word, if you know, is there's three different words for love in Greek. And one is uh, eros, which is like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, my wife is hot, love, um, and she is. There is <laughs> agape, which is the God love, the love he puts in us, but phileo is brotherly love. And this is a letter to this church that was this, the church of the city of brotherly love, and it ties into what this church was experiencing and going through, and it not only ties into that, but we also have talked about, and, and if, if you don't agree with me on this, it's absolutely, I'm not dogmatic about it. The guys that I have uh, followed throughout the years as far as theologians believe that these seven letters also speak of seven successive periods of church history. And when you look at their meanings and the names, it, if they were in any other order, it wouldn't work. I, I believe this, I subscribe to this, and if you don't, it's okay, because the message is still the same. But last week, we talked about the church at Sardis, the dead church walking, which spoke of what happened after the Reformation, which was the Holy Spirit sort of left the building 
I've got some friends in Europe right now in Germany, and they're in these cathedrals that are these giant, amazing cathedrals that are empty. They're museums. They have a name, but they're dead. That's the message to the church at Sardis. This message to this church was different. And interesting because Jesus, if you remember back in chapter one, he revealed himself to John. And then what he does in each one of these letters is he takes one of the seven aspects of who he is, reveals it to the church individually, and it happens to be the very thing that they need. And what that tells me and tells you is we need each other. We need other churches because of ourselves, we are an incomplete picture of Jesus. But when the body of Christ is working in tandem together, all seven of these aspects in motion together, we get the picture of who Jesus is. And he would say to these guys at this church, these are the things, verse one, says he who is holy and he who is true, he who has the key of David, and if you remember back into chapter one, he actually refers to himself as the guy that has the keys to, the, uh, to death and Hades. And as a sidebar, I find this completely fascinating that in this letter to this church is the only time that he deviates. And if you think about it, he has the keys to death and to Hades, but the keys of David, if you've got a keychain, you've probably got more than one key on it, especially if you're a dungeon master. Dungeon masters in the room? You know what I'm saying to you? Or a janitor at the school, like you got that, just that just wad of keys. Jesus has the keys to death and Hades, but he has the keys here of David. And if you want to write it down and go there later, Isaiah 22 tells us what the keys of David are. There's a guy named Shibna, very unfortunate name, Shibna. And Shibna had the keys of the kingdom to David's fortune, to the, and the king at the time was Hezekiah. And Shibna it talks about that those keys, if you were the key master, it would be basically like the uh, staff guy for like the president, like uh, Rahm Emanuel was, and honestly, you should, I shouldn't know who it is now, but I don't remember. But that, that would be like Shibna's job here, and Shibna had the keys to the kingdom, and they would wear them on their shoulders, right here. And it says that he did some really dumb stuff with this, because what it meant is you had the keys to the vault, to where the riches were, and to the money and the treasure. And so Shebna, it says in Isaiah 22, took that money and he built a grave with it, a sepulcher. Fascinating use of money, isn't it? But when you think about it, whenever we take the wealth or anything that God has given us here and we spend it on anything other than what God has called us to do and for his kingdom, for his glory and his good, we're just dumping it into the grave anyway. So it sounds really dumb until I look in the mirror. It says that he took it and he spent it on chariots as well. And an interesting thing happens on the way to his chariots. And Isaiah shows up and says, look, you have squandered, you have wasted, you have stolen from the kingdom. I'm going to put this key to this kingdom, the key of David, it refers to in there, onto the shoulder of another guy. His name is Eliakim. And an interesting, and this is why I would love for you to go there later and look at it. It's, it's, there's a prophecy there that speaks of Jesus and his key to the keys of David. Again, why we're talking about it today. It says that he would pin it to his shoulder. And what does the prophet say? That when Jesus returns, that the government will be where? On his shoulder. But it goes on to talk about that he will be pinned, pierced, nailed in place. And that he will be cut off. 
Eliakim a picture, a messianic prophecy of Jesus who has the keys of David, the keys to the kingdom, the keys that open any door, which is what he's about to unfold here. It's a picture for you and I to know that Jesus is that guy, and it says that he has now given you the keys, and whatever we use those on, it's our choice, but we ought not to waste it like Shibna, to throw away our lives and the keys of this power that he's given us and put inside of us the Holy Spirit and, and waste and squander it. Be that as it may, go back with me to Revelation. He says that he who has the keys of David who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. You see, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength. You've kept my word and have not denied my name. When I look at this, I realize that this is a perfect picture of the church that would follow after the Reformation. In 1793, there was a, a guy that was a cobbler, a, a shoe guy, not a guy that makes dessert. And he had two books in his collection. He had the Bible, and he had Captain Cook's travel journal. Captain Cook, that great explorer, and, and this guy's name was William Carey, and he said that his, he would read this book, his heart began to burn. He was seeing that there was this world outside of where he was, and he's reading the scriptures at the same time, and he would go into the church that he was a part of and, and share with them. He opened up his Bible to the book of Isaiah 54, verses 2 and 3, where it talks about expanding the cords, lengthening the cords, expanding the tents. It's not the prayer of Jabez, but to say that, Make room because more are coming into the kingdom. For a thousand years, going into all the world was a foreign concept. No pun intended. They weren't going anywhere. After Rome took over and the Catholic Church became institutionalized, and even in through the Reformation, if you're a five pointer, the, the question is asked, well, why would I need to go anywhere? God can redeem those folks if he wants to. He doesn't need my help. And I, and I know a lot of five-point Calvinists don't believe that, but that was where this pattern had gone, and it's why when William Carey stood up to say this, the church he was in, born from the Reformation, was completely flabbergasted. Why would you do that? Why, what would you do? Why, I mean, why would you do that? If God wants to redeem those savages, quote, then he can do that. But William Carey would go and he would get on a boat and he would go to India. And from that moment, that guy, that shoe cobbler guy was born. He's called the father of the modern missionary movement in the world. What you see around us, what even Conduit is doing is revolutionary in church history. In some ways, it continues to be revolutionary today. But at this day and age, it was completely revolutionary. This letter, I believe, speaks of that movement, that church that was born and still exists today. The last four letters, by the way, if you look at the end of them, they all speak of Jesus' return. I think these are all four churches that still exist today and will exist up until the time when Jesus returns. And this one, this church of brotherly love, that because they loved the Lord, they loved the lost, they went into all the world. And from that guy, 
Jonathan Edwards, Hudson Taylor, C.H. Spurgeon, D.L. Moody, all of these greats of our church history and recent history all came after this guy, William Carey, who was 20-some years old at the time. If you're a young person in here, don't ever think that you have to wait to do what the Lord has called you to. You get a little more qualified or a little more. Just go. What is he saying to do? Because he says here that he will open the doors, open the opportunities, which is why I believe this is one more reason that this speaks of that period, is that these guys went through doors that no man could open except Jesus. I spent a lot of my life trying to open doors (laughs) that Jesus had closed. That's a futile attempt, isn't it? This church going through doors even today. You don't know it because we live in America and we don't, it doesn't necessarily get on the news, but there is a movement. We sat in a little conference a few weeks ago, International Church Planning Conference, and you, talk, you see these guys who just love Jesus and who give risk everything. And what's happening is they're opening these little Bible schools and institutes and, and they're training these young men and women. And then the, the guy in the Philippines says that he requires two things of a student to go to his school. One is a Bible and the other is a passport. And the Philippines right now is responsible for sending out thousands and thousands of missionaries into Indonesia and China and India. There's a movement going on around the world that I believe exists today, started in 1793, that this church, this letter speaks of. And I so want to be a part of that church. I believe that we were born in that idea If you've been around a while, you know that we didn't even really know we were a church. We were a mission before we were a church. And and I think that's appropriate because the question always, well, does your church have a mission? What is your mission statement? And the question, I think, is backwards. Does the mission have a church? The, 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 The church is God's vehicle through which the mission that he has called us all to be a part of can happen. Because when we're together in a church setting, we can shoulder the load together. It's not a burden on anybody. Do you know what I'm saying? He would say to them, verse 8, that I know your works. You see, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have little strength and you have kept my word. You've not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet. And look what he says. And not know that you dominate or that you're awesome, but, and just so they'll know that I loved you. That I loved you. You. That was, and incidentally, it's not a picture of them worshiping them at their feet, but worshiping Jesus in front of them, knowing that God did love them. And it speaks of a time in that period in church history, Philadelphia, where there was a group of people that were uh, Jewish believers, uh, Jewish uh, people in uh, heritage, but not spiritually, if you know what I'm saying. And they were massively persecuting the church. I'm going to take a sidebar on this one just because it'll be fun. I believe that it speaks of those, that, that literal people there. But there's another thing that, and this again, this is opinion time. Go Berean on me. Go home and search it yourself. But I believe that there's another group of people that would say that they're Jews and are not. There's a group of people that would say that, you might have heard of it as kingdom theology, or dominion, or now, kingdom now, which is to say that there is no Millennium. There is no coming of Jesus himself. That is all uh, metaphorical. And so God is, what they're saying is God is through with the Jewish people. That he's done. 
Romans 9, 10, and 11 are as plain as you can be that God made a promise to a group of people, to Abraham. And they've been through the ringer throughout the history. There has been no group of people that has been through and survived what these people, what God's people have been through. And I believe this, that this theology, replacement theology that says, okay, all those promises because they rejected Jesus, they rejected Messiah, now we're the church, we're the new Israel. That is what is called replacement theology. And what happened in the Holocaust didn't start in 1930. It didn't start in 1920. It didn't start in 1910. It started 100 years before that when people began to look to the return of Jesus and say, for the first 300 years, that's all they talked about was that Jesus is coming back. In Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, Paul says, hey, remember when I, wrote, when I was with you, I talked about the return of the Lord and his coming and he was with the Thessalonian church for three weeks. That meant that in his discipleship and what he had the time to teach them, that he took the time on the front end to talk about the return of Jesus. That Jesus is coming back. But what happened in this idea was that since he didn't come back immediately around 300, they're like, well, we really need to think of something else because this didn't really work out. How is it possible that this little piece of land in the middle of this desert could possibly have any sort of a play at all in the globe? So we'll begin to rewrite it that it's all metaphor, that the millennium kingdom is not a literal kingdom, that it's all metaphor, that Jesus, uh, the Jews rejected Jesus, and that from that spilled down this idea that the Jews were Christ killers, that they were a subbreed of humans and that church was silent. The church in Germany, in Austria, was silent. And it spilled down from the idea that God was through with the Jewish people. This is definitely a sidebar. But I don't believe it. I believe that Paul talks about it in Romans 9, 10, and 11. It is as clear as can be. And I believe this, that if God made a promise to Abraham and he broke it, then how could I possibly trust that he would keep his word to me? If it's true for the Jew, it's true for you. So I'm gonna go ahead and make the bumper sticker right now. <laughs> there are those that say there are Jews and they're not. You and I are not the new Jewish people. We are the church. We are God's beloved and his called for his bride. He says, because you've kept my command to persevere, verse 10, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Man, that is a passage. If you don't have that one underlined, you ought to put little stars by it. Not only just kept from the, what's happening, but kept from the hour itself. I believe this speaks of him coming to get us, the rapture. And some of you might say, oh, I don't believe in that. That's fine. We're going to talk about it in a couple weeks when I get back. And I'll tell you why I believe it. Again, you can go Berean on me and see whether one thing or the other, but I believe that this passage alone is a promise for you and I. But not just to keep us from the suffering in it, but keep us out of the hour, the time itself, pull us out of it. There are pictures all throughout the Bible. And you might say, oh yeah, well Noah's one of them. God shut the door and he was still on earth and this trial came. But what about Enoch? I believe Enoch is a picture of the, ch the church. Noah is a picture of Israel. We'll, we'll get into that in a few weeks. He says that I'm going to 
take you out of that trial to come upon the whole world. Behold, I'm coming quickly. You could say suddenly is another way to translate that word. Hold fast to what you have that no one may take your crown. That crown really intrigues me because what, what does that even mean, a crown? We're going to get crowns, and that says I already have a crown. Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians 2, who, what is my joy, what is my crown? But you who I have invested in, that I have discipled, that I have loved. If we, if we uh, hold up and, and, and not let the Spirit lead us and go through the open doors, we're going to lose crowns, which are the people that Jesus has given opportunities for us to speak to our family, our loved ones, those are the crowns as we invest in them. And he says, don't let anybody take that crown from you. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. Those of you that are getting tattoos, make sure you leave room. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This letter that speaks of this church that went through the doors that the Lord opened, whether it was in India or China, and boy, we could go on for hours and talk about the stories. God opened doors, and those doors are still open today. Russ Rankin has a, a, a mentor that has said this to him before, but there is no such thing as a country that is closed to the gospel as long as you're not concerned about coming home. Just because your life is in danger doesn't mean the door is closed. And there are doors open all around us, and as a church gang, I want so bad for God to build our church, not a building, not a structure, not an organization, but to build us together. Psalm 127, Solomon says that when you build, whoever builds a house, if the Lord is not building it, then he who builds it labors in vain. I don't want us to build this church. I want God to build his church. And he said he would do that. If you've got your Bibles, would you go with me to the book of First Peter, chapter two? Because he says that we would be the sanctuary that he is building, that we are the building blocks of that church. It's 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 4. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It goes on to talk about in Psalm, I lay in Zion, the stone, and Jesus would be the cornerstone of the church that he wants to build. And you and I are the blocks, each one of us. He doesn't dwell in a house made of, that we could build for him anymore. He lives in the house us, and each one of us together become that house of the Lord. And look what he goes on to say in verse 11. He's talking about this chosen generation, verse nine, but he says in verse 11, man, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, keeping in mind that when we're, we understand we're pilgrims, this world is not our home. 
And when I know this world is not my home, then I don't want the church building to be my home because it's a part of this world. The idea of a, quote, house of God is a foreign concept after 300 years of church history. That started by Constantine. You are the house of God. Because if your kids ever run around and, oh, no, you can't run around in the house of God, or you just spill coffee in the house of God. And, and the truth is, is if I were to dump coffee on my head, then I'm spilling coffee in the house of God. This is just a floor. And God, if he ever gives us a, a, a facility, I pray that it is dirt cheap and that it is a warehouse surrounded by pallets of the stuff that we use to serve and love our community, and we can pull some chairs together on Sunday and sing about it and talk about the Lord, and then it could go back to being the church facility that could just reach the community. If it's vacant the rest of the week, then God forbid we ever do that. It's not what he's called us to do. Part of me prays that he doesn't even do that. I have this picture in my mind, though, of when you walk in that there was a building, a warehouse that... There'd be a picture, hey, these were the chairs we were going to buy. <laughs> but with the $30,000 we saved, here's the clinic that we built. Here's the carpet we were going to put on the floor. This really nice, awesome. But we didn't put any carpet, so your kid can spill whatever he wants to. <laughs> and here's a picture of the Bible Institute in Haiti that we were able to build because we, didn't, we weren't chasing this permanent structure here. He says to them, listen to this, because of your pilgrims, he says, 12, conduct honorable, i got to remember not to go there, honorable, among the Gentiles, that when, listen to this, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by what? Your good works. Let that sink in. Not by how awesome you are, by how smart or how cool, but by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of the visitation. Jesus would say in Matthew 5, to let your light shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify God. Not see that we've got it all together, we got it figured out, we got the mission statement and the slick everything. But they might see your good works. And when I see good works in the scriptures, I used to think that meant things that I don't do. You know, I don't cuss, smoke, drink, or chew, or marry a woman who do. <laughs> well, she still chews, but. It wasn't about that, and so I spent all this time trying to not do stuff. And I was so busy doing that, I, was, I didn't have time to go do or even think about what God was really wanting me to do. To care for those around me, to be in brotherly love with those that are in front of me and the world around me. And the good news is, is I'll tell you that every time, I'm, especially when I'm on a trip, I'm going someplace, I don't screw up nearly as much because I'm so busy I don't have time to do all that stuff. It's such a beautiful thing, the way the Lord has set it up. And when they look at that and they see that, he says they will glorify me. Not by how good of a sermon I can preach. Thank God. Not by how great my hermeneutics are. But by my good works, by loving those around me. That's the church that he has created, that he is coming back for. Uh, seven letters, there's only two of them that he has nothing bad to say about. One was Smyrna, which spoke of that time in church history, the apostolic church right after, and they were persecuted and tortured. He had nothing bad to say about them, and he has nothing bad to say about this church. Wait till we get to next week, Laodicea, or two weeks. This is the church I want to be a part of. This is the church 
that God wants to build. And by the way, he is building all around the world. You may not have had a chance to experience it yet, but it's there and it's unbelievable. Richard Dawkins is so full of crap that religion is dangerous to the world. He's right in one way. Religion is dangerous. Jesus is not. Go with me to Jokmel, Haiti, to Togo, Africa, to India, and see what a group of Christ followers who are sold out for Jesus, for his name, not their name, and see what happens when lives are transformed and, and changed. When the voodoo priests get saved, and now the single mom who has a chicken that she's taken to the voodoo priest because that's the only way to get the curse that the crazy cousin put on her and make her kid get better. She doesn't have a voodoo priest to take the chicken to anymore. Guess who gets to eat the chicken? Not the voodoo priest. Because Jesus transforming our lives means that a community is transformed. That's the church that we can see there. And it's one that I believe we're seeing here, hopefully in our body. I know there are bodies around us where we're seeing this. Here's, what we, here's how this works. He says this. If you go back to verse, I think it's eight. This is how this church works. It says, that he, he said, first I know your works. Okay, this church, this modern mission, last days church. He says, I know your works. And gang, that's what I want people to look at us and say about conduit. Not that we're rebellious or we're sticking it to the man but they see, they see the lives transformed of these little children here or in India or Haiti, that they see that and that's what would cause them to glorify God. It says that I see your works. Better pull up the rest of that, huh? And I've set before you an open door no one can shut it. I want us to go through the doors that he opens for us. This church itself was born out of that. I had it in my head that I was going to go be a traveling speaker, smoke a pipe, wear a jacket, write thoughtful things, live in Colorado, and let someone else deal with the stuff. And I had an opportunity to go do that. Somebody wanted to hire me for crying out loud to go and speak and a salary and a dental plan. And I remember getting the phone call and and the door was, it, it, didn't, it wasn't a door that the Lord was opening, which just was so hard because I'm like, ugh, in my gut. But I'm, my head was like, ooh, that's awesome. But my gut was, ugh, because it wasn't a door that God was opening to me. And I got a phone call. This was a Friday when the job offer came in. I get a phone call on Saturday, and it's from Diana Covey, who was the, the woman that led me to Jesus when I was little. She led my mama to Jesus. She'd been one of those threads throughout Darren's life. She just pops up at random time, times. She called and said, Darren, I, I, you know, I hadn't talked to her in a year or two at least. And she said, I, don't, I can't get you out of my mind today. I've been praying for you. And if this isn't for you, then just know, uh, just to reject it. But this is what I feel like the Lord is saying, that you've been asking yourself. And this, at this point, we were, uh, I had an artist management company. We were quite doing okay. I mean, it was, it was a good run for us. But it wasn't like I could just take two weeks, like I worked at Subway, and just put in a two-week notice and be gone or just leave that day. There was, I had to extricate myself from this thing. And she said this. They said that if that you've been asking yourself, is there more for you 
in life, in ministry, and, and I was absolutely, I'd been asking myself that. And she said, well, what God would say to you is don't kick the door down. And I knew immediately what she meant was don't kick the door down on the way out. Because the door on the way out is actually the door on the way in someplace else. And, and I, just, I knew it, and I, I called them on Monday and said, I'm sorry, I'm so you know, flattered by this, but this is not it. It was a year later before the door started to be open, and we didn't want to go through it. Like, I mean, it is wide open. I don't have to kick anything at this point. And I'm like, you want to go in there? Because, oh, scary. The door of this little Bible study that we had started, that we, we joked, in fact, our little website said, we're not a church, we just act like one. And, and we were just, the money that had come in, and we were giving away to these folks in Haiti, and it was just, but the door opened at that point, and when we went through that door, the door that no man could have opened, only Jesus could have. We went through that door. The Lord blessed it in ways I could have never imagined. And we stand here today as an, a young organization that's given a million dollars that's flown through us, not for building anything here, but through missions, through mission trips, through building things overseas and feeding the poor, the oppressed, disaster relief. I didn't know any of that was going to happen. We just thought we'd give away, you know, a couple bucks and I could sleep better at night, and I do sleep better at night, but the door was open, and what I want us to do is, this church, we just, we're born out of an open door, we'll just keep looking for the open doors. Some of us together, some of you going through a door that takes you to another place, but just the open door is the one we want to be through, but here's how it worked for them, because if we're going through doors, and we're all about works, we can be, what Paul said, weary in well-doing. Because this isn't something you do, this is a result of something that is transformed on the inside of you. Otherwise, we just become a charity in 20 years, and we're just punching the clock, doing fundraisers and 5Ks, and nothing, there's anything wrong with any of that. But you, you could just become an organization at that point. If we don't, if you don't, if I don't follow what this church was doing, what Jesus said, because you have had a little strength, that is interesting to me. Because the end times church that I thought of was gonna be this butt kicking, taking names, dominating for Jesus, rolling. And I don't see that here. This prophetic church it speaks of is a church that had little strength. I'm just gonna write weak, not because that's the word, but because it's easier for me to write and I have bad penmanship. You have little strength. What did, what did Paul say that Jesus told him in 1 Corinthians 12, 9? That in your weakness, my power is made known. My power is strong. We live in a culture that says, hide my weakness. I don't want you to know that I'm weak in this area. Because I don't want you to find me out. And in reality, all of our weaknesses, when we're put together, he is strong. Because I'm not a detail guy. Newsflash. I'm going to let you down in those areas if you're depending on me for that strength that I don't have. But if I have beside me Amy Roberts, our bookkeeper whose strength is details, on the mission side, Jana and her spreadsheet magic, I, look, I love the finished product of a spreadsheet, but boy, I can't make one. Because in my weakness, he is strong. If I will admit that I'm weak in that area, Paul would go on to say, I, because I figured that out, I boast about my weaknesses. And I believe he did that because when he boasted about them, the others around him knew, okay, well, he's weak in that area, so I can, I'm good at that. 
So I'll do this, he does that, and when we're working as a team, man, so much gets accomplished for the kingdom. In his weakness, this church was weak, not as a, a rebuke to them, as a statement of fact and a statement of, hey, but that's good news because when you're weak, it's so much easier to remember that Jesus is strong. See, my son thinks he's strong. And then he remembers because he's picking up this giant heavy thing in the backyard that he can't pick up. And he remembers, oh, but dad can do that. And he didn't even ask me to do it to begin with. When I remember that I'm weak, even in my strongest moments, I'm not strong enough to do what God wants to do in this world around me. And I'm not strong enough to do it alone. I'm not smart enough. There are weaknesses and I boast of them in the hopes that you hear me say where I am weak and you say, oh, but I can shore up in this area. And when we lock arms together, said you are weak. It says that you have kept my word. Interesting, he didn't say, but you raced through the word to try to get through the one-year Bible program. He said that you've kept it, that you have honored it. If you've got a uh, family heirlooms at home, you keep them in a safe place. You protect them. You're, you know where they are. You're aware of them. And that's what keeping my word, this is critical. Because again, in his weakness, my weakness, he is strong. It is not in my strength that I have to do anything on this earth, but God would do it through me. The door that he's opening. Most times if I'm exhausted in his, my walk with the Lord, it's because I'm exhausted trying to kick down a door that ain't coming open. The door's open, there's no work. I just walk through what he said to do. And when I plant myself by the river, if you've flown into an area you see, you know where the rivers and the streams are because there are lines of trees by them. And Psalm 1 says that his word is like that. That you would be, if you give yourself to his word, that you will be like a tree planted by the water. And that is critical because of this fruit. You've been around, you've heard me say this. is not something that strains and stresses and freaks out. Drive by Arrington this afternoon, I challenge you, and see if you see one of those grapevines freaking out trying to produce grapes. None of them are. They're just hanging out on the branches, hanging in the word. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. I'm connected to Jesus. The water of the word, Ephesians 5.26 says that you wash by the water of the word. I'm in the word, and as I'm in the word and I'm hanging in with Jesus, then the works, the strength, all come from him. And when I'm out of that, then I am exhausting myself and wearing myself into the ground, burning myself out. And he said that you would not only keep my word, but that you have not denied my name. As we are acknowledging our weaknesses, knowing that it's Jesus putting us together as a church that makes it strong, we're submerged in the word, doing what the word says, and we're flowing through us, and then fruit, which incidentally, fruit of the spirit is, is love. It's love. This is the city of brotherly love. Don't deny my name. What does that mean? Is it Peter? I don't even know who he is. I've never heard of this guy before. Yeah, that's part of it. But if somebody wants to come to your party and you don't let them in, they have access, denied. When I am denying his name, Jesus inviting himself to my party and I'm denying access because I got stuff to do. And in a church setting, man, we have seen that, haven't we? When Jesus wants to come into a situation and we deny him access. 
forgiveness. He wants, there's a, you've been wronged in a certain way. And Jesus wants to come in and to give you the love and the power to forgive that person, to deal with that. And you're denied because I got another plan and it's better. Except that it's not. I believe this week that we've seen on a national level an opportunity to be that to some folks that you may not even know, but what happened with in Goz, uh, this Gosnell trial in Philadelphia, which interestingly enough is in the city of uh, Philadelphia, is we see this guy that was a, a, a serial killer. And, and these pictures have been floating around Facebook and, and Twitter, and, and I think that this is okay. I mean, we are speaking up and saying that this is wrong. This is murder. And in voicing that, that is love, but let's not forget that there are those around us who might have been a scared teenage girl whose parents were forcing her, who might have been horrified, who might have had things in their life that we couldn't even possibly understand that might have had an abortion herself, and she sees those pictures and she feels the guilt and the shame and the embarrassment and the regret and there's not a single post that's been made that has not been made by somebody, including and not limited to me, that is not desperately in need of the, the grace and the forgiveness and the forgetfulness of our God, who is not slow to mercy. He is merciful. And I say that as a church, that's an opportunity for us to love some people that maybe you don't even know. And if not, maybe God will bring them across your path. But, and if it's you and that's happened in your life, to know that, man, Jesus extends that grace to you as well. That he says that he was to take that sin and as far as the east is from the west, wipe it away. We could extend that. We don't deny his name. And gang, when you think about it, if we're just loving each other when things are going well, there's nothing good about that. There's nothing awesome about that. That's just what people do. It's when the chips are down. It's when we're bumping into each other. It's when I do something wrong and I offend you. And we love each other. We work it out. Not ignoring it, but work it out and talk about it. That's love. And that is what the world so desperately would love to see from us. Because all they've seen so far is, hey, when one of your leaders messes up, you kick them to the curb. You send them into timeout and work loading dock and forget about them. You make them sign a contract and say, you can't even talk to anybody in this church anymore or we won't pay you a severance package. Get out of town, don't mess with us anymore. That's what the world sees. They see, a, they see a letter that floated around the internet of this young man in a city at a church who had made a mistake and he admitted, I don't even know what the, if he, what, I don't know both sides of the story, you know how it is, no matter how thick or thin you slice the bologna, always two sides. But what I do know is this, that this contract and this letter that was written to the church was, hey, if you see this person, don't talk to him. Gospel shaming was the word that was used. We need to gospel shame him so that then he'll repent and come back. And he's over there saying, but I am sorry. Yeah, but you haven't done this. You haven't run the obstacle course. I've given a higher level of entrance than Jesus has. There is no obstacle course if we allow ourselves to not get caught up in that and say to a young man that, man, we do love you. Young woman, we do love you. Doesn't mean we can't talk about problems. Love is patient and kind, and it rejoices in truth. But it doesn't shame anyone. 
And I would say to you this morning and to me that I want our church to be the church at Philadelphia. To not be caught up in the programs and the stuff and the gospel shaming and the whatever. Let, let God deal with that. Let God, I'm not Holy Ghost Junior. He doesn't need my help. But for us, for me and my house, let's not do that. Let's love each other in the highs and the lows so that they will see our good works and glorify not me because they would know there's no way that guy could ever do that. Only through God. That we could be the city, the church of brotherly love. And brothers, man, we don't always get along. I had a couple of brothers live next door to me when I went to the Bible college. Italian brothers. And man, these guys loved each other. So much that when they moved out, the amount of reconstruction that had to happen inside that apartment took five days. They threw each other through walls. They punched holes in the cabinets. And you'd go in one day and there'd be a picture kind of down here a little bit because something had gotten kicked. And, but man, they loved each other. And they still do. <laughs> We're going to bump into each other, but brothers, got a hug, man. And you might think, yeah, that's great, Darren, but I'm, I, I, I hear what you're saying. And that's a great idea that this church could be this way, that this church could be loving each other and loving each other so much that even in bad times that we are not denying his name, we're not denying entrance to him into this thing and that we're gonna go through the open doors that he's set before us of this world that is out around us. But I don't know that I believe that it exists because I've been burned too many times. I got burned by the church. And you're not alone. He went to the king and he said, hey, I wanna, I wanna go back to my home because my home lays in ruins. It's been burned, it's been scorched. And the king said, yes, I'm gonna let you go and I'm going to send you with provision and we're, you have the freedom to go rebuild it. And this was a young man named Nehemiah. And it says that he had gone back. And interestingly enough, the first time Israel had been taken captive in Egypt, when they said, you can go now, how many people went? All of them went. But this time, only 42,000 went. You see in the book of Ezra, only 42,000. The remnant is the only ones that went. And the reason was, is because Babylon was awesome. It was LA, it's New York. Why would you ever wanna go there? That's risky, it's dangerous, it's scary. There's no bathrooms. Why would I do that? What Satan couldn't accomplish through torture and abuse, he was now trying to accomplish through comfort. Let that sit for just a moment. 42,000 were the only ones that went, but Nehemiah went, and what it says that they did, and I just love this picture because in Nehemiah 4, it says that the people mocked them. Will you build this house in a day? You have no idea what you're undertaking. You can't do this. And the voices around that would say, you can't do this. But he, it says that they were building away, and it says that they looked at those stones in Nehemiah 4, verse 2, and said, can you use the burned stones, this heap of trash, these burned stones to rebuild this? And the answer was, yes. Yes, he could. They didn't bring new stones in. They took the stones that had been scorched and burned by Babylon, by Nebuchadnezzar, when he took them hostage 70 years before that. They were scorched, they were burned, and I'm telling you this morning, if you've been burned, it was not by the church, it's by Babylon. 
It's by the world system. And that world system will creep into a church just like it'll creep into a company, just like it'll creep into your heart. Babylon burned those stones. Your old pastor is not your enemy. He's, he's just not. Satan is your enemy. Babylon is your enemy. And Babylon wants to burn you to the ground and the king would say, but I can use burned stones. First Peter 2.5, he says, I'm gonna take you, the living stones, and I'm gonna rebuild. I could just see it happen. Taking these stones, washing them off the water of the word, and putting them right back in place. And I believe today that God, that we sit in a room full of burned stones, that God says, I want to use you to rebuild my church. You can't do it alone. You can't sit in a pile of trash over here and, and just be mad about it, but you have to risk and let not man, but the Lord take you and put you in the place that he needs you in. And when we're all in the place that he's put us to be, the wall is strong. The sanctuary isn't a building anymore. It's us. It's this force that can't be stopped. Jesus said, I'm going to give you this kingdom, the keys to this kingdom, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. as we worship for just a little while longer, I would ask you this morning to just think about the church at Philadelphia. To think about this God of love, that that's what he promised and anything else has been hijacked. Any other message that you've gotten is a hijacked message, it's a false, it's Babylon. I mean, think about it, even in our day and age, but in that day and age, those 300 years, you know why it was so impossible for them to step out of Christianity and to crush it? It was so decentralized, you could kill all 11 of the disciples, the apostles, and they did, and the church grew. The danger of having a giant decentralized thing where I'm your guy and you're looking to me is if I'm dead, this is over. You decentralize it and it just grows and keeps going and keeps going. I believe, and this is, again, opinion, that this is the plan that Satan implements in what we see in modern-day terrorism. He's counterfeiting what Jesus meant because the reason we can't stomp it out is it's not centralized anymore. It's everywhere. You crush it over here and it pops up over there. You hit it here and it's over there. I believe that was the plan that Jesus had for the church and Satan has hijacked it. I want to recapture it. In our homes and in our coffee houses and in our church here and there. And that it's not about a guy, it's about us and coming together and locking arms and doing something for the kingdom, not because we want to do works, but because Jesus has transformed our lives and we're holding fast to his word and we're not denying his name. That has nothing to do with Babylon. And if you're if you are scorched by the church this morning, here's what I would ask you to do, and that is to forgive whomever it was that hurt you. That was a legitimate hurt, you might feel that pain. But let the water of the word wash off the scorches and the burns and the stains and get on with our lives. There's gonna be naysayers, there already are. I get the emails. And my prayer is that they could be woke up, that you could be woke up, we could be woke up to what God has called us to do, this wake awoke into the possibility that the church at Philadelphia, that this building he wants to build is not made with human hands. It actually says he's gonna come back in with a new city, a new name, and he's gonna write it there using what? Us. 
God, would you forgive me for the bitterness and resentment that I've held to people that have scorched me? Lord, allow me to aim that at someone else, the enemy himself, Satan, who is my enemy. Lord, give me compassion for maybe some folks that exist in a Babylonian system. That you Give me compassion to feel your heart for them. Wake me up. And God, today, I just... My prayer is that I would not get in the way of this, that no one else would as well, but in the relationship of our each other and the, the church that you have created here, this is not conduit church, this is Jesus' church. Allow us to connect to the larger body, to, the, to you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Gang, If you feel disconnected from what, from God, if you feel disconnected from other people around you, what we're hoping for God to do here is to create not house churches or groups just so we can say we have that and put it on the website, but so that God can be real and moving and realizing what's happening in that in this little house here, in this house there, or this coffee bar that God is doing stuff in that group and in that group and decentralized. And if you don't feel that or experience that, would you? Would you let us know? We would be, we're not putting you on a whiteboard and telling you you gotta go here or there, but Cortland at conduitchurch.com. Cortland with a K at conduitchurch.com. If you can't remember that, just go to conduitchurch.com. Cortland would be happy to email you. If you're leading a, a small group right now, would you at least raise your hand so we could get a look? Just so people, if you're here and you feel like, I just want to be the church at Philadelphia. I wanna be a part of a group like this, there are people right here you could see today, you don't have to email Cortland, let me take the centralization out of it. And when we do that, we come together, Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to prayer, to fellowship, to teaching, breaking of bread, and the Lord added to their numbers daily. Let's be a part of that. The fellowship we're having is not just even about the breaking of bread and hanging out fellowship, that word koinonia is the word Paul used in Romans 15 when he talked about the gift he was sending to the people in Jerusalem who were suffering, who were tortured and in famine. And it says in Romans 15, we're sending our gift to you. He says it again in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And that word gift is the word koinonia. We're sending our fellowship to you. When you give it an offering this morning, I know it just feels like you're writing a check. Please don't let it do that because we want to, we are stewarding the money you're giving us. You're just passing it through, and we're going to pass it through. And we have, obviously, there are expenses here. I'm not naive, and you're not either. But the Lord has been so kind to allow that kind of provision, that kind of fellowship to come from all over to the point where the Bible Institute we're going to open in Haiti is almost funded from our church and conduit church and uh, house group in uh, Pennsylvania. So you're going to see a bucket come by in a minute. And just pray if the Lord would have you to do that and fellowship with the people here and there. And, and then ask the Lord, if, he, if you're not connected some way and you tell me, hey, I'm desperate for that kind of relationship, then act like it. When you're desperate, you do things you wouldn't normally do. Don't put me in a position as your pastor to say that, well, I can't find, I couldn't get connected at Conduit. That's not my... You're, you, all you're doing is putting me into the Babylonian thing. Then you're putting me as the CEO and making me fix the problem. 
There are people all around us that can fix the problem. Starting with you. Let the Lord speak to you this morning, not me. My words are here. Let the Lord now speak to you as we worship.